he said, just out of the blue, he says, you know, not out of the blue, but, you know, I just, this thing just came up out of nowhere. And, I'm, and so I'm like letting him go. And, and, you know, he's like, you know, I was working one day. And then the next day, or the next I know, I'm, I'm not feeling well. I'm going to see the doctor. Then he orders me in the next day to come in for tests. And then the next day he's in for surgery, right? He's in the hospital and he's in his current situation. So, um, you know, that's how life is. And, you know, he's not the first one in human history to go through something like that. I'm sure there's people here in this room who have gone through events in their life, right, that have come out, the Lord has brought into their life, right, and it has altered the course of where you were going or where you thought you should be, and the Lord's just bringing you along somewhere else, right? And so that's where he's at. And I don't think the word shaken, shaken might be too strong of a word, but it, it kind of, it did grip him, right, that, wow, this is actually happening, you know, so... I do appreciate, and, 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 I, and he does too as well, the prayers that have gone up from him. Um, the surgery seems, as you've heard, have, has, has gone well. Um, and he, there's still a long road, as David has mentioned. Um, they're still looking to do the surgery to correct the situation, not necessarily the infection, and that is uh, further down the line. But I do appreciate the prayers, and, and really this is what, uh, it's just so fascinating because in this chapter, I see exactly um, what I just mentioned, what's happening to Paul. And uh, before we get started, we, we, um, I want to read uh, one verse <clears throat> to you. You may have heard this verse before, but the Bible has um, in its own text... It has... Now, is this, is this too loud? Because sometimes I'm looking down. I don't want to be screaming into... Okay, good. Um, in its own text, let's just hold it up here. In its own text, it, um, it describes itself as this. The description the Bible gives itself, there's, there's a couple of them, you know, the Word of God, the breath, but it says this, that something about the, uh, about the Word is that it's, it's living, and this is in Hebrews, but, uh, this is verse, uh, 12, 412. Now listen to this. For the word of God, the Bible, is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, the discerning of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God has this, this trait about it. One, that it's living and active. This is, this is, this is fascinating in itself, right? Because every individual can come to it. Because the, the Bible isn't just a book, right? It's the Word of God. God breathed it. And God's alive, right? Some of the authors that we read, they're dead. They're gone. But God is, you know, He's alive. And when we come to it, you know, we can't come to it and read it on our own and get anything out of it, right? The Holy Spirit is the one that interprets it, interprets it and it brings out the meaning to it. So as we're reading it and we're studying it, the Word, uh, the Holy Spirit interprets it to us. The mind of, uh, the mind of God interprets the mind of God to us. And we get something new. So it's living and active. And so, you know, whether you're a Christian who's been um, saved for just a few months uh, up into a few years, every time you come to the Bible, there's something new or there's something that God's using it to shape your life. It's living and it's active. It's not just a stagnant book like we read some kind of novel and we know the beginning and we know the end and we know how the character is going to go through some hard times in the middle and then he's going to have a, uh, some kind of a realization and he's going to gather up some inner strength and then go defeat the enemy. No, it's not like that. The Bible's living and active. But then it says this about the Bible, that 
It's a tool like any other. It's a surgical tool that cannot be found, that man cannot create, that it divides. It's a sword that divides the soul and the spirit. It pierces so deep that it's able to divide something that we can't even divide. We can't even quantify ourselves or see the soul and the spirit joined to marriage, discerning the, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's able to get so deep that it can separate what we are thinking. And, you know, that's how we shape our reality sometimes, especially being a Christian. Like, you know, say, we'll just use before we get to Paul, because that's who's going to be our subject. But like, say for my father, like, what is this that's going on in his life? You know, he God redirected him this way. Well, well, maybe not that he was thinking. This is all just an example, but I'm using him, his situation. You know, maybe maybe God's punishing me for something I did. You know, th- these awful things that are happening to me. And, and, you know, you might have had something, a car accidents, whatever, sicknesses, illnesses. You know, maybe God's doing something. And, he, you know, our mind goes there and, and, and we think he's, he, he's doing something awful to me. And, and, you know, we start thinking these things and our thoughts, you know, our thoughts can go so way out. Some, sometimes you read in the Bible that God's people, you know, they thought God, especially in Israel, when God was leading them to a place where they were going to have rest, right, the promised land, during that journey, they got so bad in their thoughts about God, they said, God's out here trying to kill us. He's some kind of a malevolent uh, being up there. At first, they were so happy to be free of slavery, and it got to the point where it said, well, now God brought us here to kill us. Like, these are the same people that just got brought out of slavery. Like, how did they get this? So our thoughts, is what I'm getting at, can betray us. And the Word of God, we can use that tool to sever those things and say, listen, hold on a second. That's my thoughts. Let's see what the Word of God says. And let's level ourselves out. Because our thoughts, sometimes we shape our reality and we say, well, this is the way it is. We think this and, you know, we think this thing's out, but the Word of God can bring us back to the level. And the, uh, and it has that ability to shape. Uh, obviously moving in different directions, but, you know, he's never been captured and then held as a prisoner and brought somewhere. This is something new for him. And so this is going to be a little bit of a change of the way he thought maybe things were going to be, but he was just going to go with it because God was leading him. And, you know, if you were in that situation, it's like, man, what's going on? God, I, I, I need to get to, you know, I'm in Jerusalem now, but I need to get to Rome. Like, this is not the way I actually wanted to get to Rome in a prison ship. You know, under captivity, I kind of wanted to get there on my own terms, you know, maybe, you know, a little bit of freedom, you know, I could maybe work better with God, you know, if I'm not in these chains and and kind of confined. No, God says, you know what, this is the way I'm going to bring you to Rome is through this prison vessel. And, you know, this is a little bit ahead, but guys, this is what I'm bringing this out. And this is for me, too, is, you know, we think the way, you know, we see our life and where God brings us and where we're serving and what he's doing with the life. And this is the way we think we should go. But God says, you know what? You know, I'm God. I know it's best for you. I'm going to bring you this way instead. And then in, in, when we're on this journey, sometimes we can kick and scream and say, no, and we're trying to get back to the way we think we should get there. But instead, we should look at the example of Paul. And if God was going to bring me this way, and it was through uh, waiting in prison for two years, I never spent any time in prison, but that must have been awful. Um, 
you know, just there's it's literally just a few words. He was in prison right at the end of 24. And between the two uh, governor regimes and changes, Felix leaves him in there for two years. And there's nothing, nothing said about those two years. He just can you imagine just staying in there? Now, of course, the man obviously had some kind of witness in there, but God can do things like that. You remember David, the story of David, David, um, at a young age, you know, he, uh, was anointed king, God's chosen man, a teenager. Uh, not long after he goes out and gets a great victory. Uh, he defeats, we know the story, Goliath, right? Even the world knows the story that David and Goliath just slays the giant through, uh, the Lord's strength. But then after that, what does it say? He's a fugitive of his own country. He's on the run. For like at least 15, 16 years until he's a, an older man. And then God's promises that he gave him when he was a teenager come to fruition. And so you think maybe that's not the way David would have liked that to come about. Maybe he wanted it right then and there. But God says, no, there was something I was going to do in your life. There's also something I was doing with Saul's life through this journey. But, you know, the way we want things to go, God, you know, we need to... Maybe take a step back a little bit. Not maybe, we should, right? And let God do it the way He wants to bring us along because He knows what's best for us and He is God. So, you know, here we are. Paul, remember, he is, um, the last verse in 24, he's been, two years has lapsed. And Felix, being the, the, um, the governor from before, the judge, um, decides to leave Paul in prison for two years. And now three days after, Festus arrived in the province. Now, I want to really quick, um, if we can, I know sometimes we, we will lose um, individuals because it's, you know, it's history. And, but I like this because, you know what, what's going on right here is what we see in Israel today. And really what we see them doing and relying on outside strength rather than uh, relying on outside help to further their... Um, their goals rather than the Lord is what we see going on there. So we're really quick. What I want to do is you can switch it, Tim, is I just want to look at a brief timeline up until this point. It shouldn't take too long. I know we can lose a lot because all you see these history. Um, that actually is a, is a, is a line, but the brief timeline of history. And what I want to start with is around these, don't hold me to these dates. You know, this is what history tells us, but about 580 BC, right? This is before Christ. You know, between the uh, after death and before Christ, but Judas. We'll start with Judas' captivity. So, up until that point, right, the nation of Judah, which was the the split off of Israel as a whole, went into captivity. You remember this uh, is detailed in the Word of God. But Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and after a few years, um, he ends up taking the city. He sends some of them off, right? So the land is quiet. There's nothing there. There's just a few people that um, Nebuchadnezzar left. And then the next, you know, there's about, you know, some time passed in between 70 years or so. But there's a partial reclamation, right? Cyrus, now the next regime that Daniel um, uh, writes about this, right? There's major powers in the world. There's Babylon and then there's Persia. So they end up coming, they, they conquered Babylon, they conquered that region, right? They are now the landowners of the promised land. They end up allowing some of Israel to come back. So Israel then is, comes back, they rebuild it also in the, in the prophets who read about this, Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple. There's a somewhat of a temple there. So there's a partial 
reclamation. Not fully, right? Israel's not full back to the way they used to be. After that, Daniel then tells us about this this uh, goat. Remember the, the animals that he sees of the world powers that are coming to play? Well, that goat ends up being Alexander Great. We know this by, by history, right? And then uh, Daniel tells us that it splits into four. Uh, after D- Alexander's death, when he died pretty young, um, the kingdom that he uh, acquired was split into his four generals. So then Israel then is taken over by one, is, one of his generals, Seleucus. And that was about 300 years or so. Up until the point, now we're skipping a few little, little things, but up until the point that we come here, where Pompey conquers the region for Rome. So this is the, the section that we're in. Rome now is the governing body of this region. But where we're at right here is around here after Herod and then the, the procurator, which is like where they're like regional Roman uh, governors, which we see Felix is a one, Festus is one. So these are the ones that are ruling in Israel, right? Israel's not sovereign, but... They were allowed, even during this time, they were allowed a lot of civic liberties. This comes into play because they end up rebelling at the end of this. At the end of this time, because it wasn't long after, around uh, 70 A.D., right, um, there was a rebellion in Israel. You know, they, there were several liberties that they had. You know, they were able to still practice. Remember, in the Bible, we read the temple standing, still temple that was built, Herod added on to it. Their sacrifices going on. Rome still allowed them to practice their religion. They still had to owe their allegiance to Rome, but they allowed them some autonomy. They were allowed to practice their religion. They had their priest, but it got to their heads, right? They said, well, you know, why? we don't need Rome anymore. They ended up rebelling. And they had some success in the beginning in pushing Rome out, but Rome then uh, elected Vespian to come in to quell the rebellion. He ends up going back to Rome at one point, because to claim the empire, because Nero, they had enough of Nero, and he ends up committing suicide. And Titus, his son, who was with him on the campaign, ends up finishing the job and destroys the temple. And then the final one, that's in 70 AD. About 60 years later, another uh, Roman empire, again, uh, emperor, excuse me. This is uh, about uh, 136 AD, and this is also significant because there's another rebellion, of course, but Haradrin ends up uh, quelling the rebellion, and he says, you know what, these Jews are a menace. Look, at it's not that long ago we had to come in and destroy their temple. We had to, to remove their uh, uh, center of worship. That They rebelled again. This time what he does is he tries to wipe Judah off the, uh, Jerusalem and anything of Israel from antiquity off the map. He renames it to Syria, Palestinian. That looks familiar to us, doesn't it? Palestinians, Palestine. It comes from the Roman time. It's not a Muslim thing. Palestine uh, was something that the Rome, Romans tried to do to re-race, erase Israel from history. They tried to get rid of them. The things he did was awful, trying to toss them into the sea to see if they could swim or uh, float to the, to the top. It was awful. But he tries to wipe them off the map. So that wasn't, you know, that long from here, from Festus's time. This is literally maybe a hundred years to where Israel is again going to be um, brought low. But Festus, Felix, these guys are, are, are the ruling governors. It sometimes puts the, the title they're given a governor or judge or uh, procurator. 
somebody who's the legal arm of Rome to to um, to uphold Roman law, the financial situation. But Israel was afforded lots of civic, uh, civic liberties. Like you see them still worshiping um, their center of worship, right? The temple exists. Um, you know, even to the point where you see some of these judges, they had to get the favor of the Israel because they had a lot of political power, it seems like. You know, if they didn't like some judge, they just talked to somebody above him to get rid of him. And so Israel seemed like they had a lot of political power. They weren't the ruling class, right? They still, even with the Lord Jesus, they couldn't uh, inflict capital punishment on him, right? They didn't have the means. They had to go through Pilate, who was the governor at the time, to get him killed. Same thing they're doing with Paul. They can't put him to death legally. You know, they want to kill him illegally through murder. But they had to go through the legal system, the Roman legal system. So that's why they're here with Festus. That's why they're there with Felix. So we're picking up our story. So after three days, Festus arrived in the Providence. He's the one that takes over for Felix. Um, and he went up from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Now the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul that he'd be summoned to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush and to kill him on the way. I just want to pause here for a second. Um, you know, when I read things like this, and it, there's, then even when we go through the story of the Lord Jesus, it really it talks to the makeup of who we are. Now, of course. Um, being born again, uh, being a Christian, right? God now is living inside of us. But, you know, apart from that, you know, what we were before, we were dead. But we still had these forces that God had placed in us to balance our morality, the conscience. And it's just fascinating to me. Now, some people have gotten so far that they see their conscience that they have no problems committing heinous sins without any remorse. But when you come to these um, these group that wanted to kill the Lord Jesus... Like, why didn't they just kill him? Now, of course, God didn't want it that way, and he allowed this to go this way. But, you know, they wanted to make it look like it was legal so that Jesus throughout the, the age of history was put to death as a criminal. Like, it it bothered them in their conscience. It seems like you can see this wrestling that they just didn't want to kill him outright, but they wanted to make it look like it's legal. And that's exactly what they're doing with Paul. But it got to the point where, listen... They were getting so frustrated that the legal system wasn't moving quickly, quickly enough to put him to death. Like, and, and they tried to, um, just the same way as the Lord Jesus, right? They tried to accuse him of their religious law that they transgressed it. And they tried to bring that into the Roman law and say, listen, well, because he did this over here, he's deserving of death. And they're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like, we don't know what any of those laws. And even Festus later says this that, I don't know anything that you guys are talking about, but this man hasn't done anything. But, you know, here they are trying to kill him, but they've gotten so frustrated that, you know what, we want to get rid of him, but the legal system's taken too short. Well, you know, now we'll hatch another plan. And this is not the first time this has happened, right? Um, they tried to, there was 40 men in an earlier chapter that had committed themselves, listen, we're not going to eat and drink until we kill Paul. I wonder what happened to those 40 guys. I wonder if they ended up breaking their promise. But they promised that they would not eat and drink until they killed Paul. Well, Paul ended up living. Maybe they ended up starving to death, but or in the end ended up going back on the promise. But they said, you know, summon him back to Jerusalem. He's staying in Caesarea, being held as a prisoner. And along the way, we'll just, you know, stop 
have a little hamburger, some, some, some lemonade for him. No, they're going to end up killing him, right? They didn't flat out said, but they said, listen, if you do this for us, it's a tick for tack. We're going to give you more support. And so that kind of, you know, these, who wouldn't be enticed by that? But, uh, Festus ends up telling him, listen, if you want to come and see him and accuse him of something, you come up to Caesarea where he's being held. So Paul, uh, Festus replied that Paul's being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong with a man, let bring, uh, let them bring charges against them. And so he tells them, listen, that's not the way we're going to do things. He's being kept there. You know, this man has been turned over me from Felix, excuse me, and we're going to try to carry out Felix's wishes. Now, Felix, history has a lot of negative things to say about him, but he obviously, it seems like he was a very corrupt person because he ended up, in the end, uh, before his uh, before the two-year mark where there's nothing being said, where Paul is kept in prison, he kept summoning Paul to uh, to talk with him personally, and Paul's just looking at, oh, great, this is a nice time for personal evangelism with this with this uh, with this uh, authority figure. He just wants to come talk to me. But what Felix was looking for was, hey, man, you know, shh, shh, you know, maybe grease my palm a little bit and I'll let you out because he knew the man didn't do anything. He was just being kept there because of the Jews' jealousy, but he wanted to get some kind of payment. Now, if it records that, obviously Felix has a history of that, but it doesn't say Festus ended up doing that, but. He left them there in prison because, remember, the Jews, not in power, but they had political power uh, in this region. And so if you want to be a successful governor or procurator in this region, you had to get the Jews on your side. And so Felix ended up leaving him in prison. Festus then takes him over and says, listen, I know what's going on here. These Jews, they can, uh, they can really stir up some trouble. And he ends up still keeping him in prison. So Paul says... Or excuse me, picking up, it says, after he stayed with them not more eight to ten days, this is Festus, he went down to Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is, um, if you look on a map, it's, it's definitely north of Jerusalem, but it seems like any time when it's from Jerusalem, I think somebody did mention this, I can't remember who it was, but down from the mountain um, of Jerusalem. So down to Caesarea, and the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So, these uh, these people who plotted to kill Paul then are going to try this again. Remember, they tried this uh, two years ago plus before to try to try to get him legally convicted of something, and that that legal uh, uh, or the the retribution for that or the uh, transgression would then result in his death. So this is what they're trying to do again. And when they arrived, the Jews have come down from Jerusalem and stood against him bringing some serious charges against them that they could not prove. Sounds familiar, right? The Lord Jesus went through this. You know, they try to get some... Uh, even I think about the um, uh, Jezebel and Ahab, or even the man that... Uh, Nabal, right? Where he wanted his vineyard. And I don't know why this... I thought this when I came to this, uh, came to this part is, you know, Ahab wanted Nabal's vineyard, but he wanted... Instead of just flat out taking it from the man... He wanted to remember his conscience. Our conscience is in there to try to balance us. You know, I got to make this legal. He needs to go if I got to legally take that man's land. And so what they tried to do, or his wife, right, is to make him guilty of something, to put him to death, and then he can legally take it and say, ah, now my conscience 
It's not so bothered anymore instead of flat out murdering the guy and taking it. But um, they accused him of something. And what did they need? They needed witnesses. They needed witnesses to prove it. And they ended up, you know, she ended up paying somebody or two people to agree on something. And so literally we have people, it's just a lot of shouting. I'm sure it's a lot of angry talking and nobody's agreeing on anything. Well, I saw him do, I saw him go and, 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 and jump three times over here. Well, wait, hold on. And then I saw him do some somersaults over here and like, well, which one is it? We don't know what, you know, nothing's agreeing. And so it's just a lot of shouting, a lot of angry talking and they can't prove anything. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, I've committed any offense. Now, this is interesting. But remember, not eight and ten days after the conversation with the, with the Jews in Jerusalem, now Festus says, wishing to do, to do the Jews a favor. He sees this whole thing. They're, they're very angry at this guy. They're, they're very upset at Paul. It's visible. I mean, I'm sure there's spit coming out of their mouth, red faces, everything. And because, right, you, you've seen it before. Sometimes we even experience it on a personal level. When we're faced with truth, you know, what's the reaction? Either receive it and, 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 and have that pain of, of, of confessing that sin or whatever, or on most part is to fight against it, right? People are fighting against the truth every, you know, today. They're trying to kick against God. And they're trying to throw everything they can do to get him out of the way. But here they are. He He's witnessing this thing. And he says, you know, there's nothing wrong that the man's done. He, it's obviously that he's transgressed maybe some of their religious law. Or they just flat out don't like him. But Festus then says, you know what? Remember, if I if I need to get, you know, if I want to stay in power here in this region, i got to get these Jews behind me. So wishing to do them a favor, he says, you know what? I will do what he doesn't say this but i will do what they originally asked me paul why don't you wish to come uh, do you wish to come up to jerusalem and be tried there on these charges before me now hold on didn't he just tell them that i won't do that but now he will so what were they going to do they were going to wait on his way right to kill the man and so that's what he's doing he's setting him up to get killed and this is where paul then changes his direction and says you know what I am standing on Caesar's tribunal. This is Caesar's court. This is Roman law where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done nothing wrong, and you yourself know very well. If I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I uh, I do not seek to escape death, but there is nothing to their charges. No one uh, can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Festus then conferred with his counselors, says, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And so here now, Paul is on his way to Rome. This is the beginning of it. And so what he ends up doing is there's a stagnant um, decision in the court. You know, the, the acting judge there, the lower court, has decided, you know what, they can't make a decision. And the, uh, the Jews who, uh, the, excuse me, the religious party, right, who has the sway over the population, wants this man dead. But they need this, they need some kind of charge against him, and they're trying to get it, but they can't, you know, the court's not making a decision. And so, you know, Festus says, you know what, I, I, I can't find anything legally to get rid of him. I'm just gonna give, turn him over, basically is what he's doing to the Jews to go ahead and murder him on the way. But Paul says, you know what, no. I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna appeal to Caesar. I want Caesar to hear my case. And so, then the, the rest of this, this chapter, the next, uh, 13, 14 verses, 
is they, they, they're going to find out what, what should we write or in the next chapter as well. What are we going to write to Caesar? Like what charges are we going to bring to him? You know, if you've done something, right, we have this in our own court system. Um, you know, you get a ticket, you've transgressed the law, you have the option to go appeal it and to have a judge hear your case. Well, you know, I was kind of uh, looking down at my phone and I didn't mean to step in the gas too hard or whatever. You know, you can appeal your case why you transgressed. And that's literally what Paul is doing here. He's saying, listen, I'm not, I'm not accepting this decision. And really, it was an unjust decision to begin with. But I'm going to go and appeal to Caesar. So, you know, he's going now to Rome, but he's going to go through the prison system, literally, and get there through a prison vessel under guard. And so after, uh, and in verse 13, after many days, uh, after some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. And so these two other characters have come in. We see this Agrippa a lot, Herod Agrippa. This was actually one of his sons. Um, he um, was of the line of Eden, but um, the Herodian, which I mentioned here, this is also very interesting. When, when Rome came in and conquered the land, um, there was an advisor who advised how to you know, clean this out, but he ended up being of the line of Edom, and they turned basically that entire area over to Herod, who was of that line. And so Herod and his sons ended up ruling for a little bit. Of course, they owed their allegiance to Rome, but here's one of his sons, Bernice, um, which history tells us is actually his sister, it seems like. It's not his wife, but it's his sister. But she um, hung out in the court there uh, with her brother. But they ended up coming down to greet Festus. And well, they stayed there many days, and Festus laid out Paul's case before the king. There's a man left by a prisoner by Felix. And so he says, listen, I don't even know what I'm going to write to Caesar to appeal. What, I'm just going to send him a prisoner that there's no charges leveled against him? And so now, you know, Agrippa and Bernice are coming into the picture, and he says, well, maybe they can uh, give me some insight. And he says, when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders and the Jews laid out their case against him, uh, asking for a sentence and combina- uh, condemnation against him. I answered them, it is not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accuser, accused met the accusers face to face in an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. And so when they came here together, uh, Together here, I made no delay, but the next day I took my seat on tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought charges in his case against such evils, um, a case such evils as I suppose. Rather, they, uh, they had certain points of dispute with him with their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul asserted to be alive. And so now he's, he's just, uh, uh, basically relaying this case to, to Agrippa and Bernice, and he's telling listen, there was somebody left by, by Felix, and, you know, when I came and heard it, we already talked about it, that it was dispute of their own case. The, from the Roman point of view, I don't know what's going on here. You know, I don't know Jewish law that well. But I want to, I, one thing that struck me in this one passage, it says this, this is a Festus talking. He says, but about, uh, a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul asserted to be alive. You know, history, you know, we can dispute in, in talking with, with unbelievers and even talking among Christians, you know, this, you know, there's things that, you know, people like to throw up, you know, the earth's age, you know, carbon dating, and they try to dispute, disprove Christianity this way. And they said, listen, there's no way 
God could have created this and he doesn't exist. But when we come to the resurrection and the Lord Jesus existing, history proves it. And even Festus, he doesn't, he doesn't, he wasn't abiding by scripture or any of the kind of prophecies. Listen, he was dead. Obviously, we don't know what happened to him. He was dead and now he's gone. I mean, he's not, you know, he's not making that up. It's just he's observing it. And so, you know, some 2,000 years later, it's still the same story. Like, they try to, uh, history tries to rewrite itself. But, you know, if you want to come and when you're talking with somebody, and if they always will have some kind of uh, trained defense against certain things that the Bible talks about, when it comes to the existence of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, that's where they really need to, that's where the rubber meets the road. Like, what are you going to do with that? Well, he never existed. Well, you know, even history itself is against you. It's not just the Word of God. But um, he says, listen, about, you know, Paul asserts to be alive and being at a loss on how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he want to go to Jerusalem to be tried regarding there. But Paul appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, so I held off uh, until tomorrow to bring him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow you shall hear him. And then verse, let's just wrap it up here in 23. On the next day, Bernice, uh, Agrippa and Bernice came with a great pomp and entered the audience hall with uh, military tribunes and prominent men of the city. Then they command, uh, then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with me, you see this man whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, we have America's most wanted, but this is like Israel's most wanted was Paul at this time, both in Jerusalem and in here, shouting that he should no longer live any longer. So that's that's literally the scene that we tried to describe when when they came to accuse him. They're just screaming at him uh, and just getting angry, not making any sense to anybody observing it, but they just wanted this man dead. But I have found that he had done nothing deserving of death, and, and he himself appealed to the emperor. I decided... Ahead uh, to go ahead and send him. But having nothing definite to write to my lord, the emperor, about him, therefore I brought him here, especially to you, King Agrippa, so that after you have examined, I might have something to write. For it seems unreasonably, unreasonable to send a prisoner, prisoner and not indicate the charges to him. And so this is where we end our chapter. Next chapter we'll deal with that the, um, the Paul's defense before King Agrippa. But uh, Festus doesn't know what to do. He says, listen, he's appealed to go at a higher court and hear his case, but I don't even know what he's being charged with. He hasn't done anything against Roman law, and I don't know anything about the Jewish law. But remember, Acts, uh, back in Acts 19, remember, Paul in his mind, through the Spirit, has determined in the Spirit that he had to go to Jerusalem. He had to go through a different, uh, some different places first, but he had to go to Jerusalem, and then he had to go to Rome. That's all he knew. He didn't know how he was going to get there. But the Spirit made it clear to him, listen, you need to go to Jerusalem, and then you need to go to the capital of the, of that, of the regional power of, of the empire there in Rome. But up until that point, Paul's travels had been either walking by ship, right, at his own pace. Sometimes he was ran out of town, but, you know, he was traveling with companions. But now he was going to be, it was going to be a different journey. He was going to be a prisoner. He was probably going to be handcuffed. He was going to be under guard. He was going on a prison vessel, and he's going to be staying there as a prisoner. And to all we know, what history says, he was a prisoner while he was in Rome, right? He did write uh, many things when he was there. But, you know, that's the way he was going to be brought. And as we said at the beginning, 
You know, sometimes God, um, he brings us a different way that we don't expect. And it's not necessarily like we think, well, I kind of want to go this way because maybe it's an easier path or it makes more sense or I can be more useful to God if I do it this way. But God says, no, I'm going to bring you this way. Think about David. We mentioned him. Um, one of the things that the impact that it had on David is later down the road when he was faced with people that were rebelling and that were awful and that hated him, how would he respond to that person? He had to draw back on those experiences that he went through, right, when he was a young teenager, young man, being chased around, a fugitive of his own country, and God was shaping that person, right, into the man that he was going to be as a king. And so God sometimes does bring us that in our journey of life, right, to shape us and to bring us. And what's our responsibility? Instead of fighting against God, says, you know what, God, I do know what's best. No, use that word of God. Remember, it's that tool that shapes or that cuts so deep and it's able to dis- discern those thoughts and the intents of our heart. And we can level ourselves out with the word of God and just receive it, right? But that's the hard part, right? That's where the rubber, as we said, the cliche, the rubber meets the road. And it's easy to say, but we're actually there in that situation. And just, it's such a difficult situation the Lord has placed me in. But to allow him to continually pull, move us along and lead us and just trust that he is 100% good. He's not going to do something that's wrong. And that's bad for us, right? But then he loves us. Okay, let's just close in a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you uh, for this little section. And Lord, we can come to these things and, and say, well, it's just a lot of talking about what the charges of Paul, but we see some little um, truths uh, uh, just gleaned from there about what you're doing with him and just his response to the whole situation. If I was there, Father, I mean, I, I speak... Uh, clearly that I, I probably would be arguing my case. This is not right. These things that are not happening, they don't have any charge against me, but um, he just went along with it. And so Father, let us draw from these things and just really turn ourselves over uh, to your leading and your guiding fully and not have one hand on the wheel and try to take, uh, dictate where we need to go, but just trust you and what you're doing. And so Father, we just thank you um, for this time and we just look forward to next week in the Lord's... Uh, Uh, be your will that we look into the next narrative of of this story and so just bring us home safely today and and bless the remainder of this day in the lord jesus name we do pray amen